So this week, we are going to be examining in our pathways this conversation on Hinduism. So glad you guys are here today. How you doing? Good? Great to see you guys. We are going to be looking into uh, all these various pathways in this series. And so we've looked at Christianity, we've looked at Islam. Now we're going to take an examination of a very broad, as you've heard, the third largest religion in the world, Hinduism. And, uh, you know, Hinduism, you actually encounter it far more than you probably realize. How many of you have ever done P90X? Any P90X people out there? Um, yeah, I, was, I did P90X. How many of you gained your weight back after you lost it? Yep, okay, same here. All right, so that's kind of how it works. It's this fun thing to do. Anyway, in P90X, which is a super um, interesting exercise, extreme thing. And many of you have not even done that, but you've encountered one of the most Hindu, basic Hindu things that have come to the North American, that's called yoga. Anybody done yoga before? That's a much higher version of people. Now, what's interesting about yoga for me was I'm not into yoga. I was like, it was fun doing the push-ups. It was great doing all the other workouts. It was great doing all the plyometrics and things that I learned how to do. When it came to the yoga time, I was like, I don't want to know how to be able to stretch backwards and touch my head to my, my heels or some weird thing like that. That's not, you know, because that's what my thought was. And so when he gets into it, he's like, we're going to do sansaras. And I'm like, what? And it's like, I kind of knew that was like praise to the sun kind of stuff or something like that. And then you're doing positions like downward dog. I'm like, I don't want to be a dog. I don't want, this is weird. You know, eventually you're sitting there and you're, you're kind of going through what you can and you're shaking and you're sweating and it's painful and it stinks and you don't want to do it anymore. And by the end of it, he gets to the point, he's like, okay, it's time to relax. I'm like, okay, I can relax. I just crashed on the floor. He's like, we're all going to sit here and do ohms. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. I know what ohms are. Ohms are definitely a Hindu word of meditation and practice calling upon the ohm of the universe. I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. But the cutest thing and the funniest thing I ever saw was we had the DVDs sitting around for a long time was I got up one morning and my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old had turned on the, uh, the yoga one and they're sitting there looking like this. You know, doing, their, doing these little funny stances. I'm like, that's cute for a 10 and 8-year-old. But what was disturbing to me was a conversation I would have later in the parking lot here at the church. A lady came up to me who had left China, who had been a part of the persecuted church there and come to America. Her, her husband had been a pastor. And she's like, I noticed that you guys offer some yoga classes or something. It was this a few years ago for some exercise groups or something. And she's like, you understand that this is channeling spirits for them. And this is her perspective coming from the East. And this is important as we think about it, because as Americans, we think of it as an exercise. They think of it as a spiritual practice. And this is the case for so much. You are affected by Hinduism in ways that you never even realized. I mean, if you ever had a mindfulness class or something, or heard of mindfulness in your business courses, this is a Hindu practice that's been adopted by businesses as what's called transcendental meditation. It's the, it's the, it's the vacating of the mind for relaxation and actually for them for spiritual attainment. It is the concept of, of removing yourself from your situations. And this transcendental meditation Meditation is rubbed into the Christian church so that when pastors say meditation, we have to say, no, that means to think about something, not to stop thinking about something. And so when we get into this, you begin to realize there's all kinds of cases where you'll encounter Hinduism, whether it's in reincarnation or whether it's some of these other practices. The one place that you find it the most in religious practice is the consideration that we're asking. The question we've been asking is, do all roads lead to heaven? And the Hindu would say, yes. That in a very real sense, all the paths are like paths on a mountain that climb up to the peak and the pinnacle. And if, at the very end, when we all get there, we'll realize we were all just taking different paths on the same mountain. And that concept is 
clearly, clearly Hindu. In fact, it's become so clear in the Western world, many people have heard of this parable by Sri Ramakrishna. Now, Sri Ramakrishna was a Hindu saint who loved to give these kind of interesting poems and, and ideas to people to get them to remember how Hinduism works. This was taken, one of his uh, parables was taken by a man named John Godfrey Sachs. And many of you have probably heard this poem or heard it alluded to, but I'm going to read it to you because I think it captures how easily the Western tradition has taken in some of these Hindu thoughts. It's, uh, it starts this way. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant, it's very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his hand, out an eager hand and felt about the knee, and what and most, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he, tis clearing up the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth, the ele quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on each other, uh, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prat about an elephant not one of them has seen. And if you've heard this parable of the elephant or even that poem of the elephant, you know that very often what you will hear in junior high and high school and all these different places where this is brought up is that really when religions are dealing with it, really when religions are on it and look examining things, they're all looking at the same thing just from vastly different perspectives. They're each grasping some of the truth. And yet what we've said is that actually if you begin to talk to people who actually practice those faiths, with the exception of Hinduism, all other faiths will argue, no, our, our journey is far more on a particular problem and path. So that we talked about the fact they're like each different vehicles. You know, like the airplane. It flies across the what? This isn't hard. The sky, right? Okay. How about the rocket? It goes across? Say it. Good. All right. We got this. We got a car that drives on a road, different path than the other two. And finally, we have the boat that travels on the, the waters, the ocean, the sea. And this is very much like Hinduism. If you want an illustration, Hinduism is kind of that journey across the broad, vast reality of the spiritual zone and hopes to find the island that it all sails around. And while they would say you could raise the sails, you can drop the sails, you can take the current, you can turn the motor on, whatever it is, it's the long, broad journey that is the situation as you crest and go over waves and all those kind of things. And so as we take on the image of Hinduism, we want to look at this question, those three questions we've been asking. You know, what is the problem Hinduism is posing? What's the solution that they're offering? And can you give proof? Is it true? 
And what we've said is the, the faith or the religion that answers the questions about life and death and can prove it, that should be the one that we've taken. We've examined Christianity, and you can go back and listen to that one. We've examined Islam last week. And what we are looking at now is the same three questions as it comes to Hinduism. And as we examine Hinduism, I want to begin with their problem then. What is the problem Hinduism purports? The problem that they claim is the cycle of suffering from reincarnation. Now, real quick, before we all dive into this, your mind just grabbed a completely different set of definitions for several of these words, for suffering and for reincarnation. Now, we'll just start with reincarnation. How many of you know somebody who believes in reincarnation in here, real quick? <clears throat> Those of you who know somebody who believes in reincarnation, often they like to say, hey, look, I believe in reincarnation. I can't wait because I'm going to get a second life. We as Westerners like the idea. Now, in reincarnation, you get another opportunity. You get another chance to live life again. Maybe you'll find your soulmate, your sweetheart. Maybe you'll finally write that great novel that you always wanted to. It's an opportunity to live life again. And this is the Western concept of reincarnation. But the Hindus don't view it that way. Reincarnation is the problem. You see, in the concept of reincarnation in Hinduism, what happens is, according to their websites again, I'm not trying to just make stuff up, is that you go through a birth, suffering, death, and a rebirth. Suffering, death, and then a rebirth. Suffering, death, and then a rebirth. And actually, it's not you that goes through this. It's your soul. You have a soul, but that soul moves from person to person. That soul is an Atman. It's its own spiritual presence. That is you. But here's the thing. You cease at the end in Hinduism. In fact, in, in, in Buddhism, which is an offshoot of Hinduism in many ways, you actually disintegrate. You cease to exist. Your soul gets put back into the ether of the spiritual and is rebuilt into a new soul. And so reincarnation in all the East has nothing to do with you. Has only to do with your spiritual matter, your essence, your soul, what they call your Atman. And when you understand that, suddenly reincarnation isn't what, the, what a lot of the Westerners have bought into. That's not the concept that they're offering. In fact, the problem is that you, in this certain life that you're in, with this soul, you're suffering. And what they want to make out is an observation. How many of you have ever suffered something and you have no idea why you're going through it? Maybe it's a cancer, it's a disease, maybe it's a financial situation, it's a loss of a loved one, right? All these pieces are sitting there going like, man, I am going through heck. Why am I going through this? I didn't deserve it. I didn't do something for it. It just happened. They would say, ah, here's why. Because the person who had your, the, the you or the person who had your soul before you had done something evil and got away with it. I mean, how many of us have ever gotten away with something bad? You know, all of us have driven through the stop sign and kept going, and we didn't know there was no cop to catch us, isn't that true? So we've all lied to each other, and nobody found out. I mean, how many high schoolers were told in youth group, don't have sex, you'll die, and they had sex, they didn't die, and they're like, hey, this is not bad. I mean, so many of us, our moral compass is built by experimentation, and we get away with things, and we go, well, that's not bad. And they would say, well, what's happening in your soul is that you are hooking on karma. Now, karma is a weighing system. It's of good and bad. It's in, in, a, in Christianity, we, would, we use terms like you reap what you sow. That's very close to karma, except in Christianity, it happens to you. In Hinduism, it happens to your soul. Bad karma attaches to your soul so that your, the past lives and all their bad karma is being lived out 
And so somebody out there, unfortunately, is going to be born with Hitler's soul one day. Well, that's miserable. After he's a bug and something else and something else moves all the way back to a human, there's going to be a, a payoff of all his karma, karmic evil, all this karmic bad stuff. But at the same time, how many of you have done something that was so good and yet somebody else got the reward? Somebody else got celebrated or you randomly won the lottery or you randomly got some reward. Something happened to you that you never deserved. It was a good. And they say, see, that's because somebody who was before you had done something good and never got rewarded. So you've been rewarded. And when you don't get rewarded, it'll be rewarded to the next person who has your soul. And so karma has far less to do with the, the good and the bad that happens to you right now from what you do. It has far more to be a, a complex system as suffering comes from all of these lives that were before you that you have no dealings with, you cannot remember, and in fact, you shouldn't remember because it wasn't you. It's just an attachment of your spiritual essence. It's your soul, your Atman. And when you understand this, there is a cycle of suffering and a cycle of rebirth, and hopefully you're attaining and growing in your spiritual knowledge to, to get out of this. But in the meantime, you're stuck in this reincarnation suffering cycle. So what's the solution to this? All right, if your head hurts now, let's all take a deep breath because this is really going to get confusing. <laughs> You guys ready? Take a deep breath. Here we go. We're going to dive into their solution because their solution in Hinduism is that the, it's the liberation through knowledge, duty, devotion, or denial. I made that sound simpler. But really, this liberation from this cycle, they call the cycle samsara, this liberation from samsara is called moksha. In Buddhism, it's called nirvana. It's this release from this cycle of reincarnation. Now, you get this liberation through knowledge, duty, devotion, and denial. By unif and what the goal is is to become unified to the ultimate reality. An ultimate reality, this, this spiritual reality above and beyond you. In fact, what's interesting is the liberation that you're seeking is not liberation from the suffering. The liberation is from yourself. See, you are the problem. You desire. You feel pain. You are the one who is having the suffering. And the problem is you are not you. You are an Atman. You are a spiritual thing. The you is an illusion. It's a maya. This whole world is actually illusion. Their writings in the Hindu scriptures, it's called the Vedas. And the Vedas are very long. There's thousands and thousands of pages and poems and all this kind of stuff. It's been accompanied for thousands of years. And when you, one section of them is called the Upanishads. These are the more famous ones. And in one of the Upanishads, they get to this concept that I just led, led you to. It, in the Upanishads, it attempts to express the in, in, inexpressible through parables. And one of the parables is this. A father is talking to a son or it's a teacher to the student and he says, bring me a fruit from this banyan tree. Here it is, father. Break it. It is broken, sir. What do you see in it? Very small seeds, sir. Break one of them, my son. It is broken, sir. What do you see in it? Nothing at all, sir. Then his father spoke to him. My son, from the very essence in the seed, which you cannot see, comes in truth, this vast banyan tree. Believe me, my son, an invisible and subtle essence is the spirit of the whole universe. That is reality. That is Atman. Thou art that. You're like, what in the world did that just say? How many guys, when you were kids, played with that thought experiment? You know, if I take an inch 
and I only take half of it, and then I take half of that, and I take half of that, and take half of that, half of that, half of that, half of that. Half of that. Eventually, you get down to nothing. If you take the seed, the banyan tree, you cut it, and you cut out the fruit, you take the seed, you cut that in half, and what do you see inside? Nothing. Because you can cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. Now you get to the atoms. Cut the atoms in half. What do you get to? You get particles. You get the quarks. Then you get the quarks. What do you get? You get vibrating energy. Oh, see, there it is. This is what they'll say. Look, there, there it is. At the essence, at the bottom of everything is this essential energy, this spirit, this eternal, infinite, impersonal spiritual reality. Yesterday was May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Star Wars adopted these concepts in the force. And what you have is a picture of this, of this force impersonal spiritual reality that you and I are. You see, you chop you down, chop you down, and chop you down. What do we ultimately get? You are just but a spiritual force. The chair is but a spiritual force. The building, everything around you is a spiritual force. If you will just simply open your eyes and come to realize that you are not you, you are an Atman, you are a spiritual force, an impersonal spiritual force journeying through this illusion, you will reach moksha, you'll be set free. In fact, in one of the Upanishads, it puts it this way, Brahman is all, and Brahman is ultimate reality. It's that spiritually infinite force, and Atman is Brahman. This is a core foundation of their thinking, that you and I are not actually us. We are a spiritual force that is living in a maya, and what we need to do is break free from that to a liberation. We need to break free to come to these ways. The way you do that is through those four different things. The first one was, again, being this concept of knowledge. Knowledge is key and critical. And when you do knowledge, you have to sit with a guru. Now, a guru is, a, is somebody who has thought through the thoughts and looked at the Upanishads and the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and all that stuff, and they, they've come to the knowledge that they now share with you. And as you begin to journey in knowledge, they're going to ask you kohans, and they're going to introduce you to uh, transcendental meditation. You probably know one of the kohans. You probably learned it in junior high, right? What does the sound of one hand clapping make? Anybody heard that one before? And every junior high goes, this. No, no. The point is, it's, it's a nonsense statement. It's trying to ask you questions, and what happens is when you try to answer it, your brain kind of like locks up, and that's what they want. Because when it comes to true knowledge, what you're doing is you got to get past the logic. you got to get past your Western basic logical thinking process. You need to come to realize there's a gap. And when your brain freezes up and you stop and you actually just be and not be a doer, and a thinker, no, just be. What you will see is there's this gap where you are kind of beginning to just connect with your actual reality. That you aren't there. This thought is illusion. These things are what's causing your suffering. And so the second, so they moved to knowledge. The second one is duty. Duty or your dharma is the, um, is the requirement of what your life stages in. If you're a parent, you do that well. If you're a teacher, do that well. If you're a medical provider, do that well. Because your goal is to just simply live out the karma that you've been given and to pour forth as much good as you can into the future. Now that means, honestly, much of the duty has nothing to do, like we think of duty, it's your duty to help somebody. You know, that's how we think, not for them. In fact, you don't help somebody out who's in suffering or difficulty because they're paying off their karma. You don't want, if you help them, it may help you. And so they will help because it helps their karma be better, but they will eventually still have to pay off their karma even when you help them. 
So you're just passing it forward to another person, another life, another situation. And so all of this must happen. All this knowledge, all this duty is happening through multiple, multiple times through this, this cycle of samsara. It takes, they say, hundreds of thousands of lives to finally be released. So even if you get this this time, you're only giving your, giving your soul a, a chance next time, a little better chance and a little better chance. And so you need to do your duties, kind of pay off your karma, do your stuff if that's where you're at. Then there's this concept of devotion. As you heard, Hinduism has 330 million gods. We will now name them all. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that is a lot of gods. You can't get all of that in there. And, but they have everything from every animal to rocks, as you saw. And the point is, for them, it's about devotion. In fact, I watched um, as one set of worshipers prepared for a festival for a particular god. In this festival, they, they looked like Christmas trees. They hooked bells all over themselves with, through their skin, hooks into their back, and the people behind them would pull on strings as they walked down the streets to increase the pain. So they would enter into a trance-like state so that as they were walking before their God, that God might grant them some kind of grace to overcome some of their karma and move up in the cycle of evolution, spiritual evolution. All of this for this devotion to these gods. There are people will move rocks, one rock at a time, um, over each other, all the way for miles upon end, not eating and everything in order to achieve some kind of good karma, to achieve some kind of devotion to their gods. Now, this is intense. Millions of people are doing this. And then there's denial. This is the part that we know as Americans the best. Because this is the final level. Once you've done your duty, once you've done these things, denial is not just I deny my life and I go sit on a, on a rock somewhere. Actually, denial is about, if you think of yoga, it's the yogis who teach you denial. And yoga is practice of denial. Because in yoga, if you've ever done it, you know your body is screaming at you because you're holding one position for a long time. And what you'll hear from a yoga instructor is calm down, just let yourself go, and what they're teaching you is the yoga, yogic practice of ignoring your body so that you can release. And when they divide your body and your mind, it ends up, while your body is in great pain, you're denying the pain. And so in Kama Sutra, while you're giving yourself into this full pleasure, you're denying the pleasure at the same time. Also another Hindu practice. And all these places that Americans have adopted, these are the ultimate ways of disintegrating the self so that you can enter into the presence of or become one with this ultimate reality. Because at every point, you are feeling and then you're not going to feel it. And it's in this tension that you learn to deny and become one with this Brahman. Because Atman is Brahman, you're the problem. And so ultimately, there's no spiritual path that they endorse. All religions lead as long as they're practices, because that's the key, is this is a practice unto reaching to the divine. And so the solution is over many evolutions, if you will continue to do this, you will be set free. You'll be liberated from the suffering. And so that's the problem. That's the solution. Okay, we all okay now? Thoroughly confused. Ready to go. Okay. When we have this, then what's the proof? The proof is interesting because if you dive into the proof, many Hindus admit, and it's a difficult thing, that if you can prove Hinduism the way that we're talking about it, then I actually trap you in the illusion. Because if I can prove to you that this stuff is true in a proof, like as a logical proof, I'm using thought. And that's the thing you need to get away from to actually show that Hinduism is true. 
And so there aren't arguments like we would have in the West, like Islam would give or that Christianity would give or that secular humanism would give because they're saying, look, this isn't about evidences. This is about experiences. Now, there are a few that will try to give it. And so I'll give you the few that I found. The first evidence that they, or the argument or proof that they tried to give is that the religion is the, this is the eternal religion. Their argument is this, look, you know when Muhammad existed, and you know when Jesus existed, and you know when Abraham existed, and these three men started Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam. So these are human made up religions. Hinduism has no founder, and they're right, they have, it's no founder. Humanism, uh, Hinduism is actually the, the expression of the, of the search for the divine. They argue that you kill all the Hindus, it will rise back up again, it will reform itself because there is always human beings stretching out and experimenting and trying to experience the devotion, of the de or devotion or the connection with the divine, connection with the ultimate reality. And so the, basically they say, this has always existed. It doesn't matter who the human being is or where it's happened or the animal or the bug or the rock, all of creation is doing this. And so it's eternal. The problem is that that's so broad, every religion fits in it. At that point, you're not proving anything. You're just sort of saying, yeah, human beings stretch out for the divine, and every form of experimentation is Hinduism, period, done. And so it becomes cyclical. It doesn't really work as an argument. I don't quite even know what the argument is, but that's one of their big ones that I came across. And so the second major one that they go into is that, okay, then will karma and reincarnation provide this only satisfactory answer to the problem of suffering? That you suffer and I suffer because of past lives and situations that have occurred. And so the problem that I have with this is, this isn't just. You're suffering for something you never did. You are suffering not because the world is broken, but because of somebody else's actions and they got away with it. The problem is that injustice is replete in the system, and so your suffering isn't about a broken world because humanity broke it, because humanity was sinful, and because there is a God who oversees that sin. It is simply just a cause and effect relationship between past lives and future lives and all these things that are going on so that your suffering or your blessing has really nothing to do with you. You can only do a little bit of what you can, and so you can see that life in and of itself is the difficulty Besides, it doesn't answer the problem of suffering because they actually claim suffering will exist eternally and has always existed eternally. It just is. And therefore, it's an illusion. And so you're just wrong to think you're suffering. I don't think that's a very good, a very good way to help somebody out when they're sitting there struggling through depression. Oh, don't worry about it. It doesn't really exist. And the problem is, I don't believe that it is the best argument. Karma doesn't explain culpability. It doesn't give away justice. It allows people to get away with things. Unlike the Hindu, or uh, sorry, unlike the Islamic or the Christian or the Jewish vision, in which a God who knows sees the injustice and will deliver either justice or reward for the good or the evil that we do. That at least has culpability as a person and calls us to act in virtuous manners. Now, they all, most Hindus, however, from the, from the West, who understand Western logic and understand the Hindu vision, this is, happens a lot, in, especially in England, where India has been a part of England for, for a very long time. They make the best YouTube arguments. They're the ones that I looked at, and they, they have the kind of the strongest ones out there. And their basic argument comes down to this. Proof is in the practice. Proof is in the practice. If you'll simply practice Hinduism, you will realize it's true. 
If you'll just simply give yourself to yoga and the practice of yoga, if you'll simply devote yourself to a God and you will connect yourself with that divine, if you will practice transcendental meditation to reach out to the divine, you will see and have an experience that is true. You will realize that this works, and that's their basic argument. And I say, absolutely, it'll work. I have no doubt if you put yourself into, into yoga and you're really concentrating on feeling, having this pain be maximum and denying it at the same time, yeah, you'll put yourself in a psychic state. You'll put yourself in a situation where you're engaging with the spiritual. If you're calling upon the spiritual and you're asking for a connection with the spiritual, you will receive a spiritual reality. I don't deny that they don't have major spiritual events in their lives. Absolutely they do. But an experience is not helpful. Say, why? Because every experience needs something. I'll give me an example. It happens on the 91 and the 15 freeway and every freeway on the country all the time. Imagine with me you're driving down the 15 freeway at a very slow rate. I'm just kidding. So you're headed down the 15 freeway. You're going to get onto the 91 overchange um, and you're headed to the beach cities. So you know, as you're headed this way, you're going to merge into a very difficult situation. As you get into that situation, you've kind of gone down the far side and now you're pulling over. And the first thing that you do is you do what? You turn on your, your signal, your blinker. Blink, 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 blink. When that happens, all interpretive hell breaks loose, just to be honest. Because suddenly you click it on, your light's going ding, 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 ding. Now, I'm in the car on the side next to you in the line of cars waiting to get onto the 91. And what I see is this blinker turn on. My first reaction is, you know what? I'm going to speed up to let you in behind me. <laughs> All right? Some of you guys are, no, no, no. You slow down and let them in front of you. Oh, you're nice. You're a nice person. Some of you are thinking, I'm not going to let that guy in. He went down the free zone and didn't wait in line. Well, I interpret that he wants to get over, but I'm going to not. And so now the interpretation flips back. Let's go back in the car. As you're driving the car, you've turned the blinker on and you're thinking, you know what? I'm a nice person. I slow down and let people in. So I'm going to speed up so I can get in. You speed up. They speed up to let you in behind them. And together you're speeding up. You're thinking, come on, dude. He's trying to keep me in this lane. Don't you see I have my blinker on? You have now interpreted this guy means you malice. And as he's being evil to you, you decide, fine, I'm going to slow down, get behind him. Well, the guy behind him now sees you. He starts to slow down. And now that guy's blocking you. You're thinking, everybody's evil when I turn my blinker on. Isn't that true? Just everybody's evil. We all see my blinker. You know what our blinker on is on, is that, except that's the problem. You turned your blinker on when you got on the freeway. You've had it on the entire time. It doesn't mean you're going to turn or not turn. Nobody knows. You need an interpreter to tell you what the purpose of everybody's hearts are. Just because you have a spiritual experience, just because you have an experience, just because something happens, you need an interpreter. There are no bald facts in this universe. No bone that's dug up out of the ground tells you anything. It must be interpreted. No, artif no artifact found from an archaeological dig tells you anything unless it has words on it. And even then you need to interpret it. Everything needs interpretation with experience. So who's going to interpret it? In Hinduism, the answer is all interpretations are true. The experience is the experience. All roads lead to heaven. And if all experiences are true, then all experiences don't matter. No interpretation is true. Because if all interpretations are true, it doesn't even matter. And it's that very problem that we run into with Hinduism. You don't have guidance. 
fact, there is no you that you should have guidance, and therefore Hinduism cannot set you free from the suffering because you aren't the problem. You are the problem. There's no setting you free. And the problem then is, even in its communication, it begins to break down. What we need, my friends, is we need a poet. Uh, I'm not following, Greg. Been reading too much Hindu stuff? No. You need a poet. John Godfrey Sachs wrote this poem about this elephant. He mocks the theologians who sit around arguing. Well, I asked John Godfrey Sachs, how does he know what the elephant looks like? And here's the point. When you begin to examine as the blind men, ultimately what occurs is you realize the poet knows and you and I as the reader knows what the elephant looks like. So the very point of the poem makes sense to us. You need someone outside of the picture, outside of the blindness to look at this and say, they're all wrong and they're all right. Because you have a perspective from beyond. You have the real interpretation. That's exactly what Christianity offers. That God, who is personal, stands above all things, has given us the interpretation of the spiritual reality around us, the evil spiritual reality and the good, all of these pieces that are there. And as he puts it together, he gives you and I the opportunity to indeed be liberated. And it's Christianity that can liberate you from the karma. Karma is just a word for sin. It's just a way of pushing sin off to somebody else in the future or somebody else in the past. But ultimately, when you sin or you do good, you get a reward or you get a failure. But sin is ultimately the bad karma can be set free from you because Christ himself bore that. The reason humanity is groping for God is our sin separates us from him. The reason humanity seeks the divine and we long for an experience is because God designed you to plug into that divine. But we can't get there. And so we grope and we explore and we seek, but God has given us the way. He has removed the sin that is the barrier between us and him. And so now you can be free. While this world is broken because of sin, while the suffering has come and the disease comes because we rebel against our master, this world rebels against its master. So now we wrestle into this situation. And so what we see then is that you can be liberated. It says now, where the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's why this song was so right to sing today, because you are free wherever the Spirit of the Lord is. Where the Spirit of the Lord comes, you are free from all those rules and laws that come upon us from the Old Testament and from, the, uh, from Islamic concepts. You are free from all the garbage that pulls you down in your suffering. You are free to know God, to walk with God, to experience the God who made you and created you. You have this opportunity and this potential. In fact, suffering goes beyond. You're like, but I'm still suffering. I'm not free from suffering. Of course, but suffering has given meaning and it's given an end date. I mean, my, I, I get it. There are those of you out here today who are suffering from chronic diseases where your immune system won't shut down. You're struggling from the pains and the aches of OLD. You're wrestling with the loss of loved ones. You're dealing with the fact that this world is broken and it is painful and it's depressing. But what God has given you is something that no, what Christianity gives you is something no other religion does. God doesn't stand aloof to the pain. He doesn't stand over going, wish I could do something, sorry. No, you have a God who stepped into the pain. 
who lived amongst the people of pain, who himself suffered on a cross, bearing the horror of hell and suffering on himself to say, I'm not against you, I love you. I'm connected with you. I am your God. And then he pours out a spirit who, according to the Bible, gives you comfort in your suffering. And not only that, uses your suffering to become meaningful so that when you suffer, you produce character. When you suffer, and you suffer well and you suffer rightly, you're rewarded in eternity. So much so that Paul, who suffered a ton in his life, physically and from others, says, for I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. He's saying, yeah, it stinks now, but God's using this to change me, transform me, and preparing a reward that is greater in eternity. And therefore, as Christians, we don't fear suffering. We don't like suffering, but we don't fear it. And we don't think it's pointless. It is transformative. God is doing something through you, not to you. Because he is for you. He's not against you. He is shaping you, and he has put an expiration date on suffering. As it says, when Christ returns in the Revelation, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And God's children said, what? Amen. Can't wait for that day where our knees work again. You can always tell who's older and younger in the room, you know? People are like, amen? And all the old people are like, amen! You know, it's like, I'm ready. Give me that eternal youth, baby. And this is the promise, that God, when, he, when Jesus died on the cross, he took that suffering, he took that death, and he grabbed the jar and went, boom, put an expiration date on it. There is a day coming when this will be over, when the suffering will be done, when the pain and all the garbage that we do and have caused will be finished. It is going to be dealt with. And this is possible because you are united with God, capital G, not lowercase g, the ultimate reality. You see, you have a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. When Jesus bore the sins on the cross, he removed the gap. When you trust in that work of Jesus, the gap is gone, and God does something. He doesn't just leave you alone. He takes up residence in your heart. In fact, it says in Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You don't need Hindu temples. You don't need all those gods out there. You don't have to show devotion in all these ways of hurting yourself and putting yourself through pain and denial and all these things. No, what you have is the very presence of God already with you. You're the temple. He's come to dwell with you. And according to the scriptures, you know what he gives you? He'll teach you all things, it says, when the spirit comes. The Spirit of comes to you, and he bears fruit in you. That's good works. He gives you good practices to know God and to walk with him. He, when he comes, he will give you his love. That's his first fruit. That's a devotion to God and a care for others. 
And he will give you the ability to deny your sinful aspects because he gives you self-control as his final fruit. God gives you all that you need for life and godliness. He gives you all that you need so that when you sit in that boardroom, you don't sit alone when the stress is on. You have a God who cares, who is with you, to share with you, and that you can release your pain and tension to. When your children are crying and you don't know what to do, you have a God who is there to comfort you, to help you slow down so you can think with wisdom, make the appropriate phone calls, care about your children in a white way, to self-control over your anger and your emotions. You are not alone. God is ever ready, ever powerful, and ready to give you what you need. Our God is there because that sin is gone, removed as far as the east is from the west. And what a world that you and I get to engage in. A world of the ordered living God, the ultimate reality, who indeed made your soul to be like him, to plug into him. Guys, there are Christian practices that we get to experience in fasting, that we get to experience in prayer, that we get to experience in meditation on the word, that we get to experience in memorization of the word, that we get to experience in thinking on God as we get out there and we love him and we live for him and we share him. When you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he draws near to you as you draw near to him. As you live for him, he works through you and people see God in you and have an experience of God. And when you share him, it's like the afterburners of growth because it begins to transform others as it transforms you. My friends, what we have is ever opportunity to engage and experience God in a deeper, more meaningful way than any Hindu practice could ever give us. And this is exciting. I want to encourage you. If you're just like, well, I don't even know how to do that. That's why we do the keystones. The, uh, the Love, Live, and Share keystones call us to the practices in our loving Christ and our practices of, sh- of living for Christ and sharing him. Maybe today you're like, I don't know where to go next. I don't know what to do with this. I invite you to grab one of the green cards that says next step and let us know. Mark down which keystone you'd like to try and check out to begin to develop in. But they're there so that we can begin to engage and connect with our God who is here and ready and available because he's made you. He's made you his temple. He's present here today. And he's present because he loves us. God loved this world so much he gave his son. That whoever would trust, would believe in him, wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. They'd have eternal life, God's life. Be set free. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to do that if you want to receive that freedom. So would you bow your heads with me? You may be here today and you may have experimented in trying to seek out God and find him. And I, th- I'm, I praise God that you long to know him and God is seeking you as well. And today what we offer is you an opportunity to experience God with an interpretation that he gives that God loves you and that it's your sin that keeps you back from being able to connect with him. And so what he has done is he gave his son Jesus to bear that sin as a sacrifice that removes it for you so that you can have a relationship with him now, a real experiential relationship with him, a real intellectual relationship with him, a real active, engaging relationship with him. But it starts with you trusting. I wanna give you an opportunity to to begin to follow after him and to make that decision to trust him today. And if that's you, and you know you need to begin by receiving what Jesus did for you, then right where you're at, would you just let me know? Just put, put your hand up. I wanna pray with you. I'll walk you through a prayer. 
just helps you kind of communicate to God and put some words to what we're talking about. Just begins to say, God, I know that I've sinned. And I know it keeps me from you. I ask that you would place my sin upon Jesus. I trust that he's taken it away. I ask that you'd come into my life. That I could have a relationship with you. God, that you'd begin to lead me now through the whole of it. All the way home into eternity. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.